The Secret World Chronicle, a podcast novel series written by Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, Dennis Lee, and Veronica Jagan. Presenting Season 9, Avalanche. Long Time Gone. Written by Mercedes Lackey, Dennis K. Lee, Cody Martin, and Veronica Jagger. Blackened buildings had started to crumble into the charred alien landscape. Ramona stumbled forward as the ship shuddered and heaved. A rancid odor met her nose and she gagged. She and other Echo forces had moved forward to provide support to the others still deep inside the city and the main buildings. Much of the chatter had ceased, with eight keeping communications to an efficient minimum. Ramona appreciated the near-emotionless instructions and updates alongside the ever-shifting overlay on her HUD. If she focused on the information there, she didn't have time to think about what was happening back on the carrier in the spaces they'd reserved for triage. And she didn't have time to think about that weird, shared hallucination they'd all had, if it had been a hallucination, until she got a chance to talk to Bella. There would be time enough for that later. Another tremor shook the foundation of the city. A deep crack opened up along the street to Ramona's left, and the same foul smell escaped into the air. Corby saw the fissure at nearly the same time she did and leapt into the air, his injured wing putting him off balance. He landed awkwardly on one foot and sucked in a quick breath. Whole place is falling to bits. Thought smelled bad on the outside, what? It's not just falling apart. It's dying. Trini adjusted her grip on the plasma cannon that encased her right arm up to her bicep. She walked next to Speed Freak, their odd pairing providing quick firepower on the outskirts of the city. The diminutive medicine woman did not share Ramona's talent for outward calm. It's going to collapse in on itself as all of the subsystems shut down, and the rapid apoptosis will compromise anything on the inside that's part of a living endoskeleton. I concur, and I have forwarded that info. Eight began, when the AI's voice was replaced by a klaxon alarm. The alarm stopped just long enough for Yankee Pride to bark authoritatively. All forces, fall back and retreat to the platforms and ships. Fall back. Positions in a half-circle along the ridge on the edge of the city lit up Ramona's overlay, showing the remaining snipers that Mercury had placed. Debris blocked the paths that he had taken to place them. Hours ago? It seemed longer than that. Eight, you've got retreat plans for our guys on the ridge? All of them? Evac is inbound to their locations. Your team is cleared to... The boom and crack of stone gave the only warning as part of the ridge began to slide into the basin. Ramona stood, frozen in horror. She could barely hear the rotors, and she knew they wouldn't be able to reach the remaining snipers in time. I've got northwest. Tell Gilly this one's coming right for her. Corby took a few quick steps and launched himself into the air. We'll take west. Trini swung herself up to Speed's back and tucked the arm cannon along her side. Before Ramona could ask or argue, they raced toward the collapsing ridge. Her HUD flashed, Pride's command repeating in her immediate field of vision. She swallowed hard. Everyone else on me. Fall back and retreat to the platforms. Go! Eyes focusing on the terrain ahead of them, Ramona willed herself to keep her feet moving. She kept a steady count of the remaining members of her group, moving along the path that eight laid for her through what remained of the city and into the perimeter. 
Three creatures, too small to be wolves, burst from behind a smoldering pile of metal debris. They ran alongside the group, barking frantically. Only one of them had any bit of nano-weave on it, the edges singed and caked with blood. Ramona slowed to a jog, then stopped and crouched down a short distance from the largest of the dogs. It crept toward her, head down and tail low. The dog's ID came up as River. It's okay, River. You come with us, you and your team. Ramona felt her throat close up as the creature lay down a foot from her and let out a low whimper. They must have heard Pride's order and started to move, even if Leader couldn't get out with them. Come on, let's move. As if to confirm her worst fear, Eight said quietly on her private freak, Leader of the pack is offline. The group started running again, this time with the few remaining dogs who had gone into the Thulian city with leader of the pack. Three times, just as small groups of Thulians headed for them, another group of Thulians appeared out of nowhere and cut them down. Another thing to think about later. Ramona picked up the pace and kept her focus on the platforms and the ships just beyond. Small metal cylinders broke the surface of the water near the railguns, hatches on top opening to allow the retreating forces to board the larger ships. The remaining metas able to fly landed on the decks. Most carried the injured and touched down only long enough to hand off their comrades to waiting medical teams. Her HUD said that Corby was still back on the ridge, even with a wave of choppers coming back over the team on their way to the platform. The ground beneath her feet cracked and buckled, beginning to collapse on itself in meter-wide patches. Ramona fought to keep her feet moving and her mind on the singular task of reaching the line of ships. She could see other teams scrambling over the crumbling lip of the half-sphere and directing others to the ships that would take them out. A blur of black feathers tumbled from the sky and hit the edge of a platform. It split into two, the darker half falling into the water. Ramona cried and lurched forward, but the dogs moved faster and dove for the sinking figure. Another violent tremor shook the ground and pushed the ash and rock toward the retreating forces. Her exposed skin reacted to the rush of debris, but she still felt the jagged pieces and smoldering embers. Keep moving, she called to the remaining forces around her. Get to the first ship that will take you. Ramona waved them ahead, then turned to face what remained of the outer edge of the floating city. The dying fires of the initial battle marked the center of the rapidly widening crater. Where the surface had cracked under the intense heat and heavy fighting, parts of the living city oozed a bright orange ichor. The buildings and terrain that had created the ridge surrounding the lush forest continued to collapse upon the remnants of the Thulian forest. Her heart sank. No one would have survived that kind of destruction. In her HUD, two names flashed, then dimmed. Eight spoke over her private frequency to confirm the loss. Speed Freak is offline. Trini is offline. Ramona sucked in a lungful of smoke-filled air and willed herself to turn back to the ships. On one of the platforms, two of Leader's dogs stood over the sodden limp figure of Corby. Eight, please tell me that... Corby is injured and unconscious. Continue retreat ordered by Yankee Pride. She exhaled and fought down a wave of rage and tears. Understood. Continuing retreat. Untermensch and the remainder of the forces under his command had been the first unit to reach their objective. They held the area as the rest of the assaulting elements advanced, 
beating back increasingly frenzied waves of Thulians. The CCCP, his CCCP now, did not take any further losses, aside from a few of Kirill's copies. Untermensch was amazed at how quickly Yadviga, Fia, and Mamona had been able to respond to casualties. He suspected that losing the Commissar had galvanized them, making them push themselves to prevent anyone else from dying. For the most part, they had been successful. Only a few of the soldiers that fell were unable to be saved. He was glad to see that they didn't take any foolish risks, as he had seen others do when a comrade had been lost. Natalia trained them well. She would be proud of them. He still wasn't sure what to make of that split-second vision in which the Thulian High Commander had blurted out things that had made his entire self rise up in rage and revolt. Bella had been in it, and the Little Witch, and Bulwark, and Red Genie. But Red Genie was dead. Or was he? The warning klaxon and calls for retreat startled Georgie when they first blared over his Overwatch connection. They were winning. How could they possibly be considering retreat? That was when the worst shipquake yet had thrown him from his feet. He had grown accustomed to them during the push to the center of the ship towards their assigned sector. He and the rest of the fighters had learned to anticipate the bad ones, bracing themselves, going flat, or lifting off the ground with powers if they could. This quake was different. Buildings that hadn't been hit with any munitions began to crumble, and the streets erupted in places, with the cracks spewing flame or a noxious odor. He didn't need to give orders to his people. Everyone began running almost immediately. The fighting had ceased with that first huge tremor. Even the Thulians recognized that something had slipped in the machinery that kept the world ship running, and that it wouldn't be long until it consumed them all. As the unit the furthest in, Untermensch's people had priority for many of the evacuation helos. A flight of the MI-8MB Bisectrisum medevac helos intercepted his unit as they ran for the beachhead, hovering in a ruined plaza. Wounded first. Dave, Dave, get moving! Georgie glanced around for Yadviga. She and Thea were carrying a young soldier with a swath of bloody bandages around his midsection. Sylvie, you and Thea stay with that man. We're loading all of the worst cases on one helo. Keep them stable until you get back to the ship. The medical officer nodded once, then continued towards the helos. Fed presumably by eight, Georgie heard Gamma Yoon sounding off soldiers' names, directing them which helo to take the wounded to. It was the first time he noticed that Gamma Yoon had command of every Russian and former Soviet language and dialect— each man was addressed in the language he would respond to the quickest. A polyglot. It makes sense for her position, come to think of it. How had he never noticed that before? Because you never listened to the command frequency before, old man, he chided himself. If he lived through this, there would be many things he would have to learn and get used to as the leader of the CCCP. First, he needed to survive, and make sure these soldiers did too. We are full up, Commissar. If we're going to get another load, we need to lift off now. One of the pilots waved to him through the cockpit screen of the lead helicopter. To punctuate his message, a crack ripped through the plaza. The splitting concrete sounded like thunder, overcoming even the thwop of the helicopter rotors. Lift off now. We will find another ride. Unter shielded himself from the prop wash, backing away from the helos. They quickly lifted into the sky, staying low to the rooftops. 
Even as the ship was dying, some of its defenses were still operational. When the helos were out of sight, he turned back to the rest of his people. Chug, Kirill, along with several of his copies, and Mamona were all that was left of the CCCP on the ground. There hadn't been room for either Kirill or Mamona on the last flight out. Chug was Chug. Alone, he weighed enough to change the center of gravity for all but the largest transport helos, even though he didn't take up much space. And there were still sixteen Russian commandos. They were exhausted and looking at him expectantly. Eight, we need an extract. This city is falling apart around us, and this LZ is untenable. I am sorry, Commander, but there is no transport available. Hunter's HUD lit up with a map and a dotted line. This is the fastest route from your position to an evac point. I will either have a craft waiting for you or have one on the way. It was three kilometers to the new waypoint, and with how quickly the world ship was falling apart, that three kilometers seemed much longer than it normally would. Hunter turned to what remained of his forces. Comrades, drop anything that isn't a weapon or ammo. We have a run ahead of us. He started to strip off his rucksack, and the others quickly followed his example. They didn't need to be burdened down if they wanted to make it off of the world ship alive. Commissar, one of the Kirill copies, or was it the original? Did that even matter for his metahuman powers? Stomped up to Unter in a suit of the supernaut armor. Should we leave behind the heavy assets? I still have three working suits. No, leave them. If we run into anything big... We're dead anyways. We cannot delay. Kirill nodded once. As one, the three copies all exited their suits, the armor plates swinging away from the power armor skeleton like a man being flayed alive. The way that the Kirills moved, slightly different but far too similar to each other, unnerved Georgie. They're not twins, just copies, remember? Tools to be used if necessary. Time to move. They ran and the city did its level best to kill them. The tremors made it almost impossible to run at times. One moment they would all be sprinting full out, and the next everyone, save for Chug, had toppled over. Some of them were wiping out quite spectacularly. Before long, several of the men had broken arms, wrists, and fingers. Luckily, only one had a sprained ankle, and Chug was easily able to lift the man and run just as fast. The image of Chug carrying a large and uncomfortable-looking Russian commando would have been amusing any other day, but Unter had little room for humor in his heart at the moment. Pieces of buildings rained down around them, the chunks of concrete and masonry exploding like mortar shells when they hit the ground. After one particularly violent tremor, two of the Kirill copies were crushed by a section of a stone column. The remaining two didn't even break stride, vaulting over the column and the dead copies. Once, Untermensch almost fell into a chasm as the street split in front of him. He skidded to a wobbly stop right at the edge as the far side of the hole receded. There was no way for them to vault over it. Eight had already rerouted their course around the new obstacle, but it would cost them precious time. They were so close, just a little further. Unter heard the helo before he saw it, a CH-47 Chinook. American or British, he couldn't immediately tell and certainly didn't care. This is Paladin 22 to Red 1, come in, over. Paladin? Definitely British, he decided. This is Red 1, we have audio on you, no visual, over. Hunter half shouted as he ran over a pile of destroyed building. 
Roger, Red One. We're 20 seconds out from the LZ. We're going to set down right in the middle of the boulevard. Don't keep us waiting. Over. Copy that, Paladin. We're running... Movement on one of the rooftops caught Untermensch's eye, causing him to stop short. It was an injured Death Eagle, huddled against a spire. It spotted the Chinook just as it came into view for Unter, and alighted from the rooftop, screeching horribly. Paladin, you have incoming. Abort now! Before the pilot could respond or even react, the Eagle was on the Chinook, its beak and claws shredding through the aluminum fuselage as easily as if it were paper. One of its wings clipped the rotors, further crippling the eagle, but also killing the lift for the Chinook. Unter and the rest of his unit could only watch in open-mouthed horror as the eagle and Chinook, locked together in death, plummeted behind the rooftops. A second later, the whomp-boom of the explosion killed whatever hope most of them had been holding on to. What the hell are we going to do now? Mamona was doubled over, hands on her knees as she struggled for breath. There was an edge of panic in her voice. Unter could see the same fear in the faces of the others. Even Chug appeared agitated, mostly because his comrades weren't happy. Keep moving to the LZ. They might be able to send another bird for extract, Unter replied, gritting his teeth against the lie. The ship couldn't last much longer. Would they risk another helo for sixteen soldiers, when there were others that were probably closer and more likely to be saved? Knock that shit off, Commissar. Can't afford to think like that if you are going to lead. They pressed on. The boulevard was gigantic, kilometers long and several hundred meters wide, flanked by buildings. Up and down the stretch of it, Untermensch could see the remains of the earlier battle. The gutted carcasses of tanks and APCs, burning death spheres and trooper suits, and hundreds of bodies. From this distance, he couldn't tell the Thulians from the humans. Incoming. Contact right. Unter shouldered his rifle, scanning frantically in the direction that one of the commandos had called out. A large group of Thulians, many of them wounded and nearly all of them carrying weapons, rounded the corner of a building towards the center of the ship. There had to be over one hundred of them, in all. It took them a moment to notice Unter and the rest before they too brought their weapons to bear. There was one in front of the pack, with one of their energy weapons in his right hand while supporting an injured Thulian on his left shoulder. Unter and the Thulian locked eyes for several long moments. The standoff couldn't last, and out here on open ground, Unter's people would be decimated. The only thing he could think of was to order the rest to flee while he tried to charge the Thulians, make them focus on him long enough for the others to get away. But to what purpose? Without an extract, they would die on the ship just the same. Still, some chance was better than no chance. He tensed, readying himself to give the order and then sprint at the Thulians. Those boy, what's that? The exclamation came simultaneously from Untermensch's implant and from his right. He looked where the bilingual voice was coming from. It was Mamona pointing over his shoulder. He turned. Part of the side of the great ship had detached itself. It was a pale green saucer-shaped craft that Untermensch had taken for a building, wobbling unsteadily as it lifted away from the side of the ship. It hovered uncertainly for a moment, as if it couldn't make up its mind which of the many, many fighting groups to attack first. The Thulians stared at it, jaws slackening. 
Apparently, the existence of this relatively tiny ship came as a complete surprise to them. Some of them turned back to the forces opposed to them. Some of them gazed at the saucer in glaze-eyed disbelief. Then, whoever, whatever was in charge of the saucer made up its mind. It shot straight up into the sky, fleeing. The apparent leader of the Thulians twisted back around to face Unter. Well, what the hell is it going to be? Something passed over the lead Thulian's face, and he barked out a command to the group. Several of them wavered a bit, seemingly unsure, until the leader shouted at them more forcefully. The group, unbelievably, started to put down their weapons. Unter could swear that more than a few looked relieved. Commissar? One of the commandos had moved up beside Unter, his weapon still trained on the Thulians. Orders? Unter grunted, then lowered his rifle. Stand down, but keep an eye on them. There may have been enough killing for today, comrade. Not that this changes shit for us, Unter thought. The ship was still dying, and they were stuck. A warning beep from eight came over his calm. Commissar, alert. You have one unknown contact moving on your position. Large, airborne, south approach. Unter swung back to the Thulians, snarling. Was this some kind of trick? None of the Thulians had made a move for their weapons, bringing Unter up short. They didn't know what was coming any more than he did. Another violent quake rocked the boulevard, causing several of the buildings nearby to collapse. Both groups surged unsteadily towards the center of the street, away from the falling rubble. This is it. The ship is finished. Well, come on, you bastards. Let's see what final surprise you have. He brought his rifle up, facing south. Whatever was coming, he wanted to go down fighting. Unter would never admit it to another living soul, but he flinched rather badly when the helicopter crested over the rooftops to the south. He nearly shot at it, he was so startled. It took him catching himself and consciously taking his finger off the trigger before he accepted what had happened. It was an MI-26, one of the largest and most powerful helicopters ever created. This one had a number of burns and even tears in its fuselage, but it was still flying. Holy shit, that's a big bird, Mamona exclaimed. Unter shrugged. Is Russian. He started moving towards the helo as it began its descent. No easy thing, with all of the momentum it had behind it and the wreckage in the boulevard. The pilot, whoever it was, had maneuvered expertly, with the tail ramp facing Unter. Everyone get moving, now. Keep an eye on the Thulians, but get them on board, too. His tone didn't leave any room for dissent. His people herded the injured and frightened Thulians onto the helo, their weapons not quite trained on their recent enemies. When the last of the Russians had finally boarded at the end, only then did Unter hop on. He slapped an intercom at the top of the ramp, keying it. We're all on. Go. He was almost driven to his knees as the heavy transport helicopter lurched upward faster than he would have imagined possible, the ramp closing next to him. Georgie fought his way to the front of the helo, stepping over and around his people, the Russian commandos, and the mass of Thulians. The interior of the helo smelled like hydraulic fluid, blood, and the sickly sweet cloying stink that the Thulians exuded. When he reached the cockpit, he was hit with an equally disgusting cloud of cheap vodka fumes and body odor.
Vadim? Vadim Barsakov. The pilot that had smuggled Georgie, the Murdochs, and Molotov into India sat at the controls. No co-pilot. Beaming a crooked smile at Hunter. You expected linen? He turned his attention back to the controls and the sky ahead of them. The few Thulian air defenses that were still active were definitely not going to let a little thing like the ship dying stop them from attacking the Hilo. So, was sitting on deck of big transport ship, twiddling thumbs and reading. You mean drinking yourself blind, Unter interrupted. He suddenly found himself grinning, too. Yes, I was saying. Then, heard call over radio, did some sour Ukrainian needed a taxi, but overtaken. Naturally, I stole this one. The other guy wasn't using it. He shrugged, then yanked the controls, banking the helo sharply as more flak exploded and energy blasts surged around them. Many people on the radio started yelling at me, so I turned it off. He had to focus, you see. All I see is that they truly were scraping the bottom of the barrel for pilots, letting alcoholics, the lame, and madmen fly. In you, they found all three. He clapped a hand on Vadim's shoulder. Thank you, comrade. We owe you our lives. At the hell with that, he said, waving a hand, then quickly returning it to the controls when the aircraft started to dive. After a bout of cursing, he regained control of the helo. Get me a job, then we are square. Unter could see the beach and the landing craft pulling away beyond it. Land us safely on the deck and consider it done. If you don't kill us all with your breath, I might be your boss soon. He looked back to the overloaded main cabin of the MI-26, at the mass of Thulians and his people. They hadn't started fighting. Everyone looked like all they wanted to do was sleep, if they weren't scared out of their wits. Though I am thinking you won't be the only one that has to explain things when we get back. Let's just get back first. From where she stood on the deck of the carrier, Mel could see the enormous figures of Atlas and Amphitrite moving away from the sinking city. The Thulian stronghold had broken apart at its center, the two halves listing away from each other. Smaller ships and helicopters streamed away from the carnage, facilitating the retreat for those who otherwise might not be able to leave. Within the hour, parts of the city would be swallowed by the sea, settled on the seafloor in the cold, dark muck. Mel felt an icy weight at the pit of her stomach. Thousands of bodies remained scattered throughout the city, unable to be retrieved for families and memorials. They would rest alongside the hundreds of thousands of Thulians that filled the sublevels of the city. She wondered how many of them would never find their peace unless someone like Penny came to their aid. The girl stood a little ways away from her, then arms folded across her chest as she watched the same wreckage break apart and disappear beneath the waves. Smears of blood, not hers, of that Mel was pretty sure, covered her sleeves and the back of her nano-weave. Penny kept her chin up and her gaze steady, although she blinked hard a few times when a large section of the city toppled into the ocean with a heavy splash. Mel let out a long breath. She had to stay with Penny, but... But she's dangerous. Mel hated the thought, but she had seen this sweet kid kill dozens of trained soldiers with little more than a cry and a burst of something so raw that it couldn't be anything but magic. 
Giving Penny space to manage the rush of emotions was the safest course of action for the both of them, provided that management didn't require another terrifying release. A blue-green disc emerged from within the smoke that continued to billow from the wreckage of the city. It rose straight up before swaying from side to side, unable to choose a direction. Mel tensed, waiting for the craft to race toward the line of ships or attempt some kamikaze maneuver on one of the rescue choppers. Instead, it shot straight up, leaving a graying contrail against the otherwise perfectly clear sky. I wish I knew I could do that, you know? Before. Bad men. And all I could do was watch them. Penny's words cut through the wind and waves, sending a chill down Mel's spine. She glanced over at her charge. Penny continued to watch the city burn. I watched them hurt others. But in there, they were going to hurt me. And I got scared. And now they're dead. I killed them. Mel held her breath. These were the sorts of words in the flat tone of voice she expected from soldiers in her strike team, not an eleven-year-old girl. And yet, by involving Penny in this massive offensive, they had used her as part of an elite task force to subvert and subdue an enemy. Echo had no small part in pushing Penny to become what she now was. The girl sucked in her lower lip and narrowed her eyes, but Mel could see the tears beginning at the corners. I killed them. Because I had to, she continued in a softer voice. That was what I had to do, and so I did it. Because I was scared. I didn't want to. Maybe I did. Oh, God. I, I just don't know. Penny sagged, and Mel moved to catch her before she hit the deck. The girl weighed next to nothing in her arms. You don't have to do anything else, Cherie. Let's get you checked out and cleared, and then we'll find a corner to catch some sleep. You're safe with me, okay? With her arms looped around Mel's neck, Penny sobbed quietly against the nanoweave as she brought her inside and away from the chaos. Mel's own fears ebbed, but they would both need time to manage their respective emotions. In time... Mel hoped that Penny would learn the lessons that she herself had struggled to master to remain part of Echo. Where the hell is Victrix? Jack scowled. He chanced another peek around a heavy spot of brush where they were currently hiding. From his vantage point, it was a mess of organized chaos. The Allied forces had managed a rapid retreat from the dying master's spacefaring city, and now platforms and carriers bobbed in waters off the coast near Fort Lauderdale as ferries moved steadily back and forth, bringing the combined Allied forces to dry land. Some were using the Coast Guard or National Guard facility. Some were taking the worst injured up the river to the intercoastal for faster evac than by land. Medevac choppers powered back and forth overhead. And some of the forces, Overwhelmed with exhausted, hungry troops were simply loading them into Zodiacs and dumping them right on the beach, evacuated of tourists for the event, where a fleet of buses stood by to take them to the mostly empty motels, it being the summer doldrum season. We can't stay here much longer, Jack muttered and fell back under cover, his back to the ever-growing noise of now thousands of people milling about on the sands. Kanjar put one hand to the side of her head, listening to the implant. Vicky had offered one to Jack, but he had declined. 
Kanji had told Jack that hers was not the result of an offer, but of a non-negotiable point in her defection to Echo. It tells me she is unavoidably delayed, she said. She won't be able to make our rendezvous. She's safe? Safe enough, Kanjar shrugged. Eight doesn't seem to feel that I need to know more than that. Well, that's just spiffy, Jack muttered. We were sort of counting on her magic right now for this final delivery. For starters, Kanjar reminded him. Don't worry about that, Jack said. I think we'll be able to manage the rest on our own. But we really needed Victrix for this part. It's not like any of us can just walk onto that beach and ask for a favor. You can skip the cryptic talk. An electronic voice buzzed loudly from a sack that hung from Jack's hip. I know you're talking about me. Keep it down, Jack snarled. Shut up or I'll shut you up. You wouldn't have the first clue how, the voice scoffed. This is master technology. Even I don't know how it works. Pretty sure if I tear off your speakers, that'll shut you up good and permanent-like. Fine, the voice said petulantly. I'll keep the volume low. Satisfied. Not yet, Jack said. Ask me again in about ten minutes. I don't see why you're being like this, the voice complained. You've won. You've beaten them down, and you even got your bonus prize, me. And I'm completely at your mercy. You must have been dreaming about this moment, Jack. You don't sound particularly worried, Jack replied. Should I be? If you wanted me dead, you would have just smashed this unit into pieces or plugged me into the collective before taking it offline. Obviously, you want me alive for something. That's a start. I see this as a fresh opportunity for some interesting negotiations. I've deduced what you were doing on the Master's core ship, you know. I have a pretty good idea what you want with me now. Shall we cut to the chase? I have a few demands. This should be good, Jack said. By all means, enlighten me. Well, obviously, if you plan to get my best ideas, you'll have to do better than make a virtual slave out of me, the voice replied. And somehow, even though he was producing sounds with nothing more than some electrical impulses, he managed to sound as arrogant as ever. I'm a resource. I'm an immortal brain you can profit off of. But you have no way to force me to work for you, so you'd better start coming up with what I want. I want full partnership. I want to oversee the construction of a new R&D facility for exploring Tholian tech. I want priority for any project that will get me fully mobile with senses again. That's hardly too much to ask. After all, I'm the only person on this planet that's seen this stuff from the inside. Right. Jack didn't reply. I mean, 
You wouldn't have pretended to work with Echo and go to all of this trouble to rescue me if you weren't going to use me, right? So this isn't exactly ideal for me, but it's something I can work with, and you get what you want, right? Jack still didn't reply. Oh, fur. Verdigree sighed. I've never been one for patience. Kanji, be a dear and kill him for me, won't you? Kanjar examined her nails critically. I wonder how my orphans in Mumbai are doing, she asked of the open air. Kanjar? I said kill him. Kill him now! What is it that the old lady Dixie Bell once said? Kanjar asked. Oh, yes. This dog won't hunt. What is this? Verdigree was almost screaming now. I said kill him. Kill him like the dog he... That's it. Jack sighed and reached into his hip sack. With a grunt, he removed a small metallic cube the size of a softball. It was smooth to the touch, its polished surface broken only by a few small attachments. One of them, the speaker unit, protruded from one side like a miniature flagpole. The cube glowed, bathing them in a reddish light that pulsed as verdigree screamed from within. Jack gripped the speaker between his fingers. We don't need to hear for you for this next part. You're not this simple, Jack, Verdigree cried. I'm the only one who knows how to plug me in anywhere. If you silence me... If we silence you, another voice interrupted, at least we'll be able to hear ourselves think. Verdigree fell silent. That's right, Harmony chuckled. This was a team effort. Hello, Verdigree. It's been a long time. Still think you've pieced it together? Does my presence suggest any other possibilities to you? Verdigree didn't reply. Why don't I fill in the blanks? Jack grunted. Just to save us some time. But first, as I am a man of my word... And with a sharp snap... Jack broke the speaker attachment off and flicked it away into the trees. I take it you can still hear me? Jack asked. The cube emitted a sharp, angry flash of red, then fell to a sullen, ruddy glow. I'll take that as a yes, Jack said. You've been feeling a strange itch for the last year, haven't you? Something that just didn't feel right, like someone was watching you like someone was planting annoying little glitches in your schemes to throw them off, like someone was plotting against you. You weren't imagining any of it, you know, and you really should have seen it coming. Did you really think you could betray me again and I would let it go? Thing was, I probably would have just offed you and considered the books balanced, but the more I thought about things, the more I realized just how much you were pissing me off. You, one of the greatest minds this world has ever produced. And how did you spend your time? With acts of frivolity, with self-serving crap, when you could have done so much good for this world. 
Even in the face of extermination by an off-world threat, you were obsessed with how you would come out ahead. It was ludicrous. So I started small. I got close to you the only way I could. You'd pick up any tracers or bugs easy, so I got cozy with the one person you trusted above all others. The cube responded with another angry flash of red. Never really understood the blind spot you've always had for Kanji, Jack continued. She's all about karma, but for some reason you never faltered in your belief that she would remain loyal to a backstabbing piece of shit like you. Like I said, it started small. If you wanted it, I made sure you didn't get it. It was no accident Murdoch showed up at that hotel and found your angel cage, and then traced the seraphim down when you and that Chinese wench kidnapped her and busted the angel out. That little operation you had running on the Gaza Strip wasn't difficult to disarm. Just needed to dry up the funding for the local rebels, and things played out like they should have. Things really did begin to ramp up when I learned about your bigger targets, though. You sidestepped the obliteration of that chemical plant in Hungary well enough, found a new source of components for your meta-nullifying gas, but you really should have invested a bit more security in your processing plant. You actually did it, you know. You found a way to completely nullify metapowers. I realize you were on a schedule, but don't you think you should have made the solution a bit more stable? All it took was a bit of formic acid and some simple salts to modify the gas you released at the Georgia Dome. One failure after another, Verd. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't enjoying myself, but you really needed to know the truth. No one is untouchable. Everyone must be made accountable for their actions. Everything I did felt justified. Well, except for the rash. That literal itch you felt rare species of Ugandan tick I had Kanji let loose in your bedroom. That was just for kicks. Jesus, Jack, another voice said from above them. Remind me to never piss you off. You don't need to be scared of the little man, Paris, Harmony said, looking up with a smile. I won't let him hurt you. Jack also looked up. Got anything, Scope? From above them, a few leaves rustled in the trees as Scope called down to them. Still no sighting of Victrix, and you just happened to pick a spot that's swarming with Echo. We'd have less to worry about near the CCCP or Allied European forces. We'll figure something out, Jack growled. He paused. Scope, by any chance you see Atlas? You're joking, right? Scope said. He blots out half the sky, him and his squeeze. He looks like he's talking to some general. Uh, he looks pissed. She looks like she's about to make Mr. Four Stars into paste. Jack nodded thoughtfully, considering her words. She sounded more like her old self, with some of the old fire and bravado in her voice. He suspected it was all an act, of course. She'd rallied for this big score, but she was slipping away. He could almost feel it. They were almost finished here, and then she could rest. But was she already too far gone? He hoped not. It would be tragic to lose her now, after they had done so much. He hated to ask, hoping that her part was done, but it seemed Scope had one more task to fulfill. Think you can grant me an audience with him, Scope? There came another rustle of leaves from above them, 
a moment of hesitation, and then Scope dropped lightly down next to him, landing like a cat. She brought herself up to her full height, met his eyes with a cold, lifeless stare, and nodded. Her hair was thinner, almost wispy, and her skin was so pale now, dry and cracking in places. As long as they don't get too close, I think I can still pass for the old me. Let's go, then, Jack said, ignoring the hateful flashes of light that pulsed from Verdigris' cube as he dropped it back into his sack. Just get me close. I'll do the talking. Scope nodded and led him from their hiding spot out into the open expanse of the beach. Her echo nano-weave was evidently enough to get them past everyone, as long as they splashed along the waterline. Judging by the way just about everyone was sprawled on the sand, that might have had as much to do with sheer exhaustion as anything else. At this point, people were too tired to be vigilant. They got within hearing distance of the little conversation just in time to hear Amphitrite snarl. I have heard enough of your foolishness, mortal. You do not control a goddess, nor her consort. I am leaving. Be grateful I do not notice you. And with that, the thousand-foot, stark-naked beauty turned, sending a wave splashing over the general as she did so, and stalked off into the depths. Within moments, all that could be seen of her was her head as she swam away, surrounded by the leaping dots of dolphins. Now soaked to the skin, the general spluttered and stuttered in his rage, as Atlas, formerly the mountain, looked down with a half-smile. Jack noticed he still retained his modesty wrap. He suspected Amphitrite had lost hers as a strategic move. It couldn't have been easy for the general to maintain his dignity, much less his cool, while staring up at nipples the size of truck tires and another part you could hide a fleet of SUVs in. Sorry, general, but she's right. You've got no hold over us, Atlas boomed. We're not U.S. citizens. She never was, and you people made sure of that for me when you issued the orders that sent me into the ocean. We can live in international waters indefinitely, and you can't touch us. And trust me, you don't want to get her angrier than she already is. She can scuttle any naval vessel she cares to with a rogue wave. He made a shooing motion. Just retire from the field of combat while no one else knows what an idiot you made out of yourself. Evidently, this four-star at least knew when to accept defeat. He turned on his heel and slogged his soggy self off to where his jeep was waiting in the road. Atlas was about to follow his consort into the water when he paused and looked down at Jack. Directly at Jack. Mr. Eight says you want to speak to me? He boomed and knelt down, a courtesy he had not given to the general. Yes, I do. Jack said. I have a little problem on my hands. He waited for Atlas to ask what the problem was, but the giant had that listening look on his face that told him Eight must have something more to say to the metahuman. Then the giant stone head nodded. I understand, sir, Atlas said with respect. And Miss Victrix is not available, so you need a certain package disposed of. I can drop it in the deepest place in the ocean for you and cover it over with a couple hundred pounds of rock to make sure it doesn't accidentally get found. 
Amphi and I were going there for a little vacationing anyway. For a moment, Jack felt a little unnerved that Fix had entrusted the AI with so much information, but then he shrugged mentally. From his assessment, Vitrix was appropriately paranoid. And the thing was supposed to be her replacement if she went down. It'd have been pretty stupid not to tell it everything. That's right, he said, taking the sling bag off his shoulder. I'd appreciate it. Atlas grinned. And I appreciate being able to do this, he replied. This bastard tried to murder Ramona Ferrari. I'd have hunted him down and crushed him, but this is a much more satisfying solution. As frantic red flashes shone through the fabric of the bag, Atlas looked around and picked up a long piece of discarded rope, dropping it at Jack's feet. The thick hawser had looked like a thread in his giant hand. Tie that tight shut, then tie it to my wrist, please, he added. This is one thing I don't want to lose until it's time. Jack bent down and picked up the rope, paused, and held the bag up. I gave you what you wanted, Verd, he said. I made sure you found your immortality. Granted, it's not really how you envisioned it, but you will have an eternity to come to terms with it. Maybe you'll find some peace. I kind of doubt it. I'd like to think I'm casting you into your own personal hell. Whenever it gets too much for you, remember me, will you? Remember that I tore you down off your goddamn perch and tossed you away like you were nothing. Remember my face. The face of the man who beat you. And with that, Jack tied the bag to Atlas's wrist and stepped back. The giant stood up, gave him a two-fingered salute, and strode out into the ocean and disappeared. Scope led Jack back to the others at an easy pace. Steady, he had warned. We're not out yet. Don't rush, we need to blend. Don't really feel like taking on all of Echo if anyone recognizes us. He need not have bothered. Scope moved in a leisurely way, hardly seeming to care at all of the chaos that ensued around them. While some were resting quietly on the beach, most of her former colleagues busied themselves with setting up the temporary beachhead before they too would eventually be carted off and back home, she supposed. She barely gave them a glance and moved slowly and purposefully back to the point just beyond the tree line where Harmony and Kanjar hid, waiting. She didn't look like she cared because, in truth, she didn't. She was finding it harder and harder to care about anything anymore. Just one thing mattered. Harmony. She had to be close to Harmony. As they disappeared into the trees, Scope broke into a run and flew into Harmony's waiting arms. She caught a look of disgust from Kanjar, who simply grunted and moved away from them. Scope didn't care. She was back again, where she belonged, with Harmony, and in her embrace, she felt him again. Her mind and senses began to swell with his presence. Bruno? Dimly, she could hear the others talking. Well? Kanjar asked. Package delivered, Jack grunted. 
Don't know how this rates on the karmic scales, but eternal imprisonment at the bottom of the ocean under a pile of rocks seems a just reward for his crimes, wouldn't you say? That is not precisely how karma works, Jack, Kanjar answered, but her lips were upturned in a very, very small smile as she said it. It will do. If the fates wish something else for my former employer, they will intervene. For now, I am content to have played a role in his downfall. And I am simply giddy with mine, Harmony laughed. Then we're done, Jack nodded. We're set. Kanjar gave him an odd look, then shrugged. As you say, she nodded and bowed. May our paths never again cross. Kanjar turned to leave. Not to tarnish this touching farewell, Harmony interrupted. But some of us are still awaiting our payment. Or did you forget, Jack? Of course not, Jack said and moved slowly towards Harmony, his hand dipping into a pouch on his belt. I promise to return something to you, and I will. I am a man of my word. Scope felt Harmony shiver and grunted in annoyance. The warmth of Bruno's presence faltered for a moment, then fell away, and then he was simply gone. Scope exhaled in fear and pain as his absence brought back a familiar emptiness inside her. No, she whimpered. No, bring him back. Hush, child, Harmony hissed. You'll have him back soon enough. Consider this a cleansing, a brief period of baptismal fire before you experience the true extent of my powers and the utter bliss I can bring you. I am a little surprised, though, Jack, that you would dare carry it on your person. Might it not have been wiser to simply hide it and offer me its location? Don't have time for crap like that, Jack said. It was tough enough just recovering it from Bird's Vault. I want to get on with my life, and the thought of spending any more time with the likes of you than I have to is... Well, let's just say I've had my fill. He pulled his hand from the pouch and held up something draped across his knuckles. Scope glanced up warily and noticed that it shone in the setting sunlight. It was a necklace. From a gold chain of links more robust than most modern chains dangled what appeared to be a thick pendant... A portrait on a silver disc, crudely engraved by modern standards, of the heads of what appeared to be a Renaissance couple, the disc itself set within a gold setting. The pendant spun slowly, revealing that there had once been an engraving on the gold back as well, but it had been burnished away, leaving only the uneven surface to betray that something had once been there. Scope felt Harmony shiver again, and with a sudden lurch, she lunged for the necklace, throwing Scope aside in her mad desire to possess it. Wait, Jack said, and drew a pistol with his other hand, leveling the barrel at Harmony's head. Just wait. Harmony stopped and hesitated. A gun won't stop me. You sure? Jack said. Just hear me out. He held the necklace up higher. I know what this is to you. I know what you are, and what it means for you to have found this. You couldn't know, Harmony hissed. 
No one could know. Victrix did, Jack said. Victrix seems to have figured you all out. And she told you, didn't she? Harmony growled. She did, Jack answered. Didn't believe her at first, but hell, we live in a strange world, don't we? And after today, I can't see there being many people who would scoff at the existence of magic. And hell if this doesn't lend some credence to the old stories. When she told me the tales of the Lamia, it all fit. Everything you can do, it all fits. Except how you even exist. The ancient Lamias all died out. They were brought down in the Dark Ages, as were most demons of the time, by the Venatores El Tenebre. Although there were rumors, like always, of tarnished bloodlines from breeding with humans. You were human once, weren't you, Harmony? To acquire your birthright, it required a bit of sacrifice. Your soul, for one thing, ripped from you and placed in a prized, personal, connected possession. Jack's eyes lingered on the pendant for a moment. Pretty thing. Careless of you to misplace it. You must have been pretty hungry without it. Starving, Harmony muttered. And is this the part where the backstabbing mercenary reneges on his deal? No, Jack said. Like I said, I'm a man of my word. I know what this can do. What horror I might be unleashing on the world, but a deal's a deal. But you know, too, how this has to go. You can't simply take this from me. This must be freely offered and freely received. Harmony leaned back and stared at Jack and laughed. Of course, she chuckled. My, my, you have done your homework. I commend you, Jack. Well done. You know, ever since that time in Tesla's office, I have wondered, what is your meta-power? It is delicious, that much is certain. Mm, telepathy, perhaps? Did you lift these stray fragments from my mind? Nah, most of this is from Victrix, Jack said. And as for what I can do, well, I assume once you get your hands on this, you will be able to see all of us a lot clearer. Am I right? Oh, yes, Harmony smiled. You will be as transparent as glass. Then I willingly part with this, Jack stated. Will you take it up without reservation? I will, Harmony said. Oh, yes, yes, I will. Done, then, Jack said, and released the necklace into the air. The necklace glittered as it spun through the air, the clasp parting, Harmony's eyes fixed on it, as if she was mesmerized by it. She snatched for it, but it seemed to pass through her hands and flew towards her neck as if it had been drawn there. The two ends whipped around her neck, and the clasp fastened. There was a brief flash of light as the spell Vicky had spent weeks in crafting activated, a spell that had required an actual piece of a long-dead lamia, binding the necklace in place. Harmony gasped and clawed at the chain, but her hands did pass through it. She had accepted it without reservation, and now there would be no breaking the spell. 
Evidently, it had never occurred to her that someone could weave more magic into the spells already on the piece so seamlessly that she couldn't even see them until it was too late. But then, as Vix had told Scope, when you see magic as math, you can manipulate the math as much as you like until you get the answer you want. And that wasn't all that Victrix had said to Scope that day. Scope gasped and fell to her knees as the fog lifted from her mind. You sure you want to do this? She felt herself nodding, reluctantly at first, but then with conviction. She looked up at all of them, at Jack, at Kanjar, and finally at Victrix. Yeah, she heard herself say. I'm going to need more than that, Paris, Victrix had said. This won't work without your full cooperation. I know what we're asking is a lot, but to get her in place, we're going to have to feed you to the wolves. I get it, Scope had said. I'm in. Then let's hear it. You have my permission to bury my memory, she had said. Until such time that Harmony is bound, I will have no recollection of this meeting or our plans to imprison her. Thank you, Paris. My name is Scope. Thank you, Scope. Vicky had smiled then and embraced the young woman. I promise this is temporary and necessary. With this memory fog in place, she won't see you coming. She'll be able to detect any tracer we plant on her, but not when we plant on you. Just make with the hocus-pocus, Victrix, she had snarled, and let's take this bitch down. Scope shook her head as the memories flashed back to her. She looked up, feeling groggy, and froze as Harmony glared at her, her eyes filled with hate, her thoughts probing. You! Harmony screamed at her across the expanse of their minds. You did this to me! I did, Scope thought, throwing a mental image of a middle finger back at her, and laughed. Suck on that, bitch. As weary as she was, Scope felt an intense elation as Jack approached Harmony and gripped her by the binding chain. Okay, I lied, Jack admitted. Just a little. Still can't stand you, don't want to be anywhere near you, but that's just too bad. I'm not really going anywhere. You wanted to know what my meta power is? You remember when you drained me in Tesla's office. You really shouldn't have touched me. It made you something of an open book. So buckle up, Harm. You're going to have a long time to figure out what that means. Harmony began to fade. A sort of dim, glowing umbilical connected her and Jack. She tried to scream, but it seemed she couldn't. Her mouth opened, but nothing came out. She flung herself at Jack, but her hands passed through him. She was now a kind of ghost, and Scope could feel her desperation in her own gut. The ties that bound them worked both ways now. But then, it stopped. Scope felt a flash of Harmony's triumph as the spell started to reverse and Harmony took on more and more color and substance, drawing her own essence back from Jack. Oh, dear, Harmony purred. Did we forget to read our mystical instruction manual? Can't be, Jack gasped. 
Victrix worked this mojo backwards and forwards. You should be stuck, imprisoned inside me. You know, Harmony said, shaking her head. I can't say I remember anyone ever being disappointed that I wasn't inside them. You know why it didn't work, don't you? Jack said. Of course I do, Harmony replied, sneering. Any chance you'll give us a hint? She doesn't have to, Scope said, and wobbled towards them. It's ringing in her head like a bell. No, you can't, Harmony cried, her head whipping to the side to glare at Scope. Paris, you don't have to do this. I can give you Bruno. I swear it. Release me, and you will have him with you forever. You swear? Scope asked dryly. I swear it, Harmony screamed. You need only keep quiet and release me. Just think of it, Paris. Think of Bruno. You will be together, always. Scope stopped in her tracks and returned Harmony's look of desperation with one of serene satisfaction. I will always have Bruno, she said, with or without you. Scope turned to Jack and gave him a weak smile. Sorry, little big man. You've got the wrong chemistry. Harm can't be held by anyone with man meat. This one's going to take a little girl power. Paris! Harmony screamed. Please! The name is Scope. Or Warden. Either will do. And with a flourish, Scope grasped the chain around Harmony's neck. Harmony tried to scream again, but it died out as her form was consumed by an immense flash of light. Scope winced and looked away, then shut her eyes resolutely. She felt a calm serenity wash through her and became acutely aware of the sound of her own heartbeat. It had slowed, and then she heard it echo. No, not echo. It had been joined by another. When she opened her eyes... She took in her surroundings with a bemused smirk. The sun had almost set, and Jack's face seemed particularly amusing, open astonishment bathed in a fiery orange light. And next to Jack, Kanjar was laughing. Man meat, the tall warrior chortled. That's a good one. Throughout the Echo Medical Facilities, those who could move and assist without being in the way maintained a steady level of activity to support the healers and hospital staff. Those not of ECHO or CCCP who could be moved to their home base of operations for recovery flew out on an hourly basis. Those with more severe injuries remained in Atlanta under the supervision of ECHO Med, occupying the operating rooms and intensive care units to capacity. With little reason to be elsewhere, Ramona kept herself occupied at the hospital in support of the healers and doctors, keeping the coffee strong and updates brief. Yankee Pride had set up a place in one of the nurses' stations where he could work with Spin Doctor on the appropriate press releases and correspondences to the families of the living. If she didn't have any place to be, Ramona stole a nearby chair and kept Pride company. There wasn't any small talk, just the quiet and solid reassurance that each was there for the other— waiting until the last of their comrades was cleared to go home. One of the nurses assigned to Gilead approached them sometime after midnight and gently touched Ramona's forearm. 
she jerked up, the skin beneath the older man's fingers immediately silver. Doc mentioned that your friend Rick is out of recovery and should be waking up in a bit. Room 2007, just down the hall. He glanced past her to pride and winked. Doc also said that you need 30 minutes on a cot so she doesn't kick you out. Nothing personal, just policy. Ramona patted her boss on the shoulder and stood. Come on, you go close your eyes. I'll wake you after I check on the speedster. Promise. She didn't wait for him to follow Gilead's orders, but turned the corner and made a beeline for the room. In the hours that had followed the retreat and transport back to Atlanta, she had lost track of Mercury and a few others who had survived the horrific assault. Eight had given her updates throughout the day and night, but they weren't the same as seeing him with her own eyes and sitting by his bed. The door to 2007 was cracked open, and she could hear the hum of machines from the hallway. Stealing herself, Ramona took a deep breath and pushed the door open. They had put him in a room with another echo patient, their identities hidden from each other by the heavy white curtain in the center of the room. In the hospital bed, a groggy young man lay against white sheets, one leg held in a complicated support mechanism that Ramona had never seen before. Bandages covered his chest and bruises mottled his skin upward. She winced at the particularly colorful spread on his jaw and neck. Mercury offered her a dopey smile as she came in. So, Madal, he slurred. Did you know that's the third surgery since I've been here? I should get a punch card or something. Fifth one is free, or I get ice cream. Or maybe both. At least he had the really good drugs. It made sense for the guy with the hypermetabolism. Ramona pulled up a metal stool to the edge of the bed and rested a tentative hand on his arm. Both. I'll make sure that it's both. And for what it's worth, I'm sorry for hitting you so hard. It left a bit of a mark. It's okay. Chicks dig scars, right? By the end of this, I'm gonna have so many you'll have to beat all the admirers off me. The dopey grin widened, and Merck shifted closer to her. You look beautiful. And that's not all the stuff they got in me. That's all the truth. But I figure that you should hear it. Because I don't think I told you before we got on that boat, uh, ship, uh, the thing in the water before we met those giants. Wait, are you crying? Was she? Ramona scrubbed at her face with the back of her hand. Damn it. Stress, and I'm just glad that you're here and able to make stupid jokes. Beautiful wasn't a joke. He studied her face for a long moment, and Ramona thought he was going to break down and cry with her. Instead, Mercury chuckled and gave a contented sigh. I'm glad you're here, but I'm sort of sleepy. Be back when I wake up, okay? Ramona nodded, the lump in her throat making words impossible. The gesture had a near-immediate effect, and his eyes fluttered closed, his breathing slow and even. She stayed still, lips barely moving as she gave the soft, subvocal command. Overwatch. 
Eight, give me a rundown of Mercury's injuries and prognosis, please. The list popped up in her HUD overlay, and she read through it with some small bit of relief. With extensive therapy and rehabilitation, he might return to Echo in some capacity. The most recent surgery had put his pelvis and lower back together like a jigsaw puzzle, with enough metal rods to make his insides resemble a kid's construction set. She flipped through Gilead's notes and lingered over the short paragraph at the end. Requires ongoing neurological assessment to determine if full metahuman capacity can be regained. Recommended psychological evaluation due to Thulian attack. 8. Ping me in 25 minutes so I can nudge Pride awake. She repositioned the stool to rest her forearm further from the expansive bandages. Merck shifted and his hand moved over her wrist, the touch dry and warm. Ramona allowed herself a few tears of relief and lay her head down. Unless it's Spin or Bella, I'm just going to stay here. So many memorial ceremonies. Too many. Others might still be soaking in the euphoria of victory, but Bella, and virtually every other commander of any size of force, was, only three days later, deep in the planning of a memorial ceremony. CCCP had already had theirs. Nat's body had been shipped back immediately to her father in Moscow, where she had been buried with full honors in a military ceremony, next to Molotov and the rest of the CCCP fallen, going back to the Great Patriotic War. Yank wasn't handling the loss as well, so Bella had simply taken over the planning of the Echo Memorial. So many dead, from every branch of Echo all over the world. Some were only names to her. Some she knew from the attack on Ultima Thule. But some, some had been her friends from here in Atlanta. She'd shared blood and drinks with them. She'd healed them. Their faces kept coming between her and the computer screen. Ramona had offered to help her, and so had Mel. But Mel needed to recuperate herself, and Ramona needed to be with Merck. And Vicky, who would have been a tremendous help, was somewhere unknown. With Red, she said, although Red was still officially dead. The Colts and Eight can do whatever I could that we'll need doing for a while, I promise you. And if Eight can't, I'll come back. But unless the world is on fire, I need away time. So much bravery. So little time to say anything about it. And not just from those who were lost, but those who had lost parts of themselves. Corby's wings were never going to lift him into the sky unassisted, but he was already consulting with Silent Knight and some of the other tinkerers about a sort of folding, lightweight framework, like power armor for wings, that would let him soar again. Merck was still out of it, and faced months, if not years, of rehab, and instead of despairing was planning on binge-watching every episode of every sci-fi series ever during rehab sessions and was already writing his schedule. And Bear, actually complaining that the new body was letting him sleep at night for the first time in over half a century. But it was hard to hold back tears, so Gardner was patiently sitting with her, quietly handing her tissues when she choked up, and providing arms and a shoulder when she had to stop long enough to get herself back under control. My big darling bulwark. I could never do this without him. She finished adding the last of the L names to the list and worked her way steadily through the M section. 
Ramona was going to read this part of the list. Ramona was the one who'd paradoxically had the least to do with the Murdochs. She felt Bulwark rest his hand comfortingly on her shoulder as she reached. Those names. Damn it, she said, wiping her eyes with the back of her hand. Gardner, would you hand me the tissues? My box is empty. Here you go, miss. A hand that wasn't Bulwark's stuck an open box of tissues over her left elbow. Her eyes went from Bulwark, sitting there open-mouthed, to the box of tissues, to the hand, and the fingerless glove it wore. She spun the chair around so fast she almost gave herself whiplash. What? She couldn't come up with a coherent thought, because it was Johnny. No, not Johnny. Younger, this was a late teenaged version of Johnny. Leaner. None of the darkness in his eyes but that same damned lopsided smile. And no scars, physical or mental. She sensed nothing in him that wasn't... cheerful. Sunny, even. Still intense and earnest. But not the damaged and then healed that Johnny had been in the end. Chick. She stuttered, as Bulwark continued to stare in shock. John Murdoch, Jr., he added, setting down the box of tissues and offering his hand. Pleased to meet you, Miss Parker, Mr. Ward. Finally, a word exploded out of her. Junior? She continued to stare at this too young version of the man she had known and considered one of her best friends. Junior, she repeated, not saying what she was thinking, which was to wonder who in the hell this boy's mother was and whether John himself had ever known anything about this kid. Wait, did Bethulians print a J.M.? They could have. The facility she'd subverted could have printed humans just as easily as Thulians and hybrids, couldn't it? For some reason, her mind flung, not panic, but a few bars of ethereal music at her. Music like... The door opened, but she remained fixed on this youthful doppelganger, her mind refusing to budge. As in the opposite of senior. John Murdoch, the real one this time, casually walked through the doorway. Close behind him, her wings tucked, was the seraphim. No, Sarah Murdoch now. No, wait. Reflexively, she did a quick telepathic scan and slammed right up into that fire hose of celestial energy that no Thulian print job could ever have copied. It wasn't as strong as it had been, maybe half or a third of the strength, which was still Echo Up 4 level and would have scared the shit out of her if it hadn't been them. Clearly them. And there was more of that energy, muted, more like Op 3 from... Junior. Impulse sent her flying out of the chair, damn near climbing over Bulwark, to throw her arms around both of them. Oh my god! Oh my god, you're alive! She babbled, and then burst into hysterical tears. All the tears for all the people she had wanted to weep since... Well, since all this started, back in Las Vegas, an age ago. J.M. put a comforting arm around her and held her against his shoulder, while Sarah unfolded a wing and cupped it around them both. Don't go spreading that around, kiddo. Death has been good to us. 
nice and restful-like. Well, we have been a little busy, Sarah said, her eyes flitting over Bella's shoulder to Junior, briefly. A laugh broke out of her, cutting the hysterical tears short. Junior once more offered her the tissues. She took a fistful, sopped up her face, blew her nose, and looked up into first his smile, then across to Sarah's. Where the hell have you been? How did you survive nuking that ship brain? How did you spawn a teenager in the course of a week? In reverse order, John started, holding his hands up in surrender. It took a bit longer than a week. I think he's 19. 18, Dad. J.J., she automatically assigned him as in her head, interrupted. Next month. He's not bad in a fight. Taught him everything he knows, naturally. The now-elder Murdoch beamed. As for the ship, that poor thing sure went through a hell of a lot. Abused for millennia, tortured, ripped to pieces and put back together again. Even after all that time, the fucking Thulean still never figured out everything that it could do. Like kids playing with hand grenades and nukes, they used what they could, ignored anything they didn't understand. He shook his head. The poor thing was a torture victim, Sarah said, her eyes brimming for a moment with tears. We could not free it. We could not heal it. There was no way to shut it off or disconnect it in any way. It was terrified one day the Thulians would learn how to use it to lure others of its kind, murder their crews, and take them too. It wanted to die. No, it longed desperately to die. So we helped it, and it helped us. Helped you, Bella said, looking from Sarah to J.M. and back again. How? We did our trick. We helped kill it. But before the chain reaction could come back and take us out, it sent us away. Far away. Bella fixed him with a gimlet stare. And you spawned a 19-year-old in a week. Pull the other one, Murdoch. Technically 18, and not in a week. When I say far away, I mean New Mexico. Also, a little bit before we all knew each other. I was born in Alaska, J.J. said helpfully. This was making her head spin. Far away? New Mexico? Alaska? We are going to be having a long, long, long talk about this, John Murdoch, she said. But, all right, are you back? Or do I keep you in the memorial service? Because, after all, Red was still officially dead and intended to stay that way, or so he said through Vix. And they were op fours, and right up until the attack on the mothership, there had been far too many people in high places who wanted the couple locked up or under some kind of control. We'd like to stay missing, if it's all right, John said evenly. Aside from you, Bulwark, Vic, and Hunter, we don't want to have much of a profile, officially or unofficially. There are still a lot of folks out there that wouldn't mind having us under lock and key, either as lab rats or as a pocket ace for the next apocalypse. Both of us have had our fill of that sort of living, he said, looking to Sarah. 
I do not know if I can keep my temper if yet another arrogant, power-hungry, greedy... She struggled for a moment, and then burst out with, Asshole tries to tell me that he is more important than the infinite. Her wings bristled until she looked like a giant red pine cone, until she managed to smooth her temper and her feathers down again. Bella felt her eyes widen. You just swore, she said faintly. I was provoked, Sarah replied. John thinks we will be more effective if he and I remain quietly available to you. After all, he is still wired for Overwatch, too. You can have us in moments if you need us. John hit the side of his head with the heel of his hand. That's what I was forgetting. Overwatch, cancel shutdown. John Murdoch is now online, Eight said. The tone was matter-of-fact, because, of course, Eight already knew the Murdochs were in the office. Bella almost never shut her access off anymore. We're also going to need a set for the boy before too long, but we can figure all of that out soon. He crossed his arms in front of his chest, nodding to Bella. What can we do to help? She let out her breath in a whoosh. Gardner, she said, looking to Bulwark. I'm thinking they'd be handy as... Sentinels. Watch for trouble, wait in if things are going pear-shaped, disappear like the Lone Ranger. We're about to have a crazier world than before. Countries all over the world with Thulian tech and medicine science. Thulians who haven't surrendered. Thulians we can't reprogram that escape from wherever they're held, and God only knows what Verdigree and other metacrooks are going to get up to. Things have destabilized in a big way, and they're a lot more complicated. And I do not for a minute think that all the Thulians have been captured. There are probably cells of them tucked away all over the globe. I like the idea of having an ace in the hole. Bulwark nodded. What about the boy? He asked, nodding at J.J. That's up to him, John said, shrugging. Figure let him try things out with y'all and with Hunter, and maybe on his own if he keeps his nose clean. He's his own man, after all. You know about Nat, then? She asked, then shook her head. Of course you do. Well, we'd be very happy to have J.J., but so would Hunter. Although he'll probably bitch about not running a kindergarten and make you sign a non-destruction of Ural's pledge. I think I can manage that, J.J. said. John arched an eyebrow at his son. Well, for a little while, at least, J.J. added sheepishly. Oh, the tales I could tell, Sarah sighed. The tales I could tell. The family, with the occasional good-natured rejoinder from Bulwark when Sarah or J.M. poked a little fun at him, went on like that for a while, talking about plans for the future. How amazing was that? Bella closed her eyes for a moment and reopened them. The Murdochs were still there. A family. There had been so much loss, Almost an unbearable amount of loss, but there were good things, too. Vicky and Red had somehow healed each other. John and Sarah had done the same. She had discovered the love of her life, who loved her the same right back. Ramona, with Merck, who would ever have guessed that? Not the pudgy little echo detective, that was for sure. Even the mountain, now Atlas, 
was with Amphitrite, whose madness was thankfully of the cheerful delusion kind. Terrible things had happened, but wonderful things too. And we freed ourselves from something that was absolutely inevitably going to end us, she reminded herself. We know the Thulean history now, and they have never let a subject race escape. Either they are enslaved or destroyed. There was no third option. Already fracture lines were forming in the Grand World Coalition that had seen them to victory. But for right now, there was peace, and with the Murdochs, Ramona and Merck, Vicky and Red, and yes, her and Bulwark, there was hope. Hope for the future. So, yes, it was worth it. It was worth it all. Bring him back. Scope ran a finger gently along the spine of the bloodied dagger, waiting for the rush to hit her system. Nothing happened, and she sighed. You know the rules. Nothing good will come from resisting. Just give me what I want. And again, there was no answer. She looked around. She had never been in Key West before. It was lovely here. White sands, aquamarine waters, gorgeous towering palm trees. Just lovely. She considered staying a while. Why not? Nothing on the outside mattered so much anymore, but a view was a view. And he would have liked it here. Bruno had talked about retiring here one day. But for Scope, it hardly mattered. Truth was, she would have been content to hole up in a swamp or in a cave somewhere. One place was as good as another, and she had all the time in the world now. The exterior was meaningless, just a scenic backdrop to the heart of what lay within. It was her body, the confines of a newly forged prison, that mattered. The only thing she had to do was keep breathing, and that didn't seem to be much of a chore any longer. Nothing was. She suspected she might be eternal now. Only time would tell, or not. Was there an end to time? She wondered if she would ever find out. She grasped the blade again by the hilt. Bring him back, she commanded. Do it, or we'll take it from the top. Again, there was no answer. Fine. Have it your way. She reversed the knife and drove it into her arm, and on the inside, she heard Harmony begin to scream. With a slow, almost delicate motion, she began to carve Bruno's name into her own flesh. Only then did she feel him return. His presence flowed back into her and through her, and she sighed, once again in her lover's embrace. She let the knife go, letting it fall with a soft thud onto the sand, onto a growing soaked stain of her pooling blood. She felt nothing but him, nothing but Bruno. The pain was for harmony alone, and Scope scarcely noticed her wounds closing, healing, as Bruno's name faded from her flesh. The screaming stopped, too, replaced by muffled whimpers, as she felt Harmony retreat to some far corner inside of her. Scope didn't care, not as long as Harmony remained inside her cage and fed her what she wanted. 
I love you, Bruno. Soft darkness. Softer bed. The gentle scent of amber and vanilla. And magic everywhere around her. Wards layered on wards, protections on protections, all of it familiar and comforting. They were in one of the guest suites at St. Rhiannon School for Gifted Students. This was as close to a home as Vicky had ever gotten, given how much moving around her parents had done. No one could find them here unless she wanted them to. And this was the best, maybe the only place where Red could safely learn about his new self. And it was definitely the only place where she could get a new sword and dagger forged. And maybe, most important of all, this was a safe place where they could learn about each other. Of course, there was always a price to pay, but this one was one she was glad to provide. Linked through eight, St. Rhea's was about to enter the Internet age, with magical analogs of computer terminals and M-space connections to eight. It was all agreed to. She'd already set up the first terminal for her own use, and soon St. Rhea's would have an actual computer lab. Eight was loving the idea of all the company, all the new people to talk to. Eight was also loving all the new spells the eager students were filling her spell bank with. No more worries about running out. This would be St. Rhea's ongoing payback to Echo for saving the world, to keep Eight able to do some of the kinds of remote magic Vicky had done. Gray was somewhere, networking with all the other familiars, or maybe bitching and gossiping, or all three. Herb was probably with him, wary of elementals at the best of times. The faculty of St. Rhea's was letting him do pretty much what he wanted to. Good thing he was so well-behaved and polite. Vicky was curled on her side, and cupped around her like a physical manifestation of the protections on the school, was red. Not that long ago, she would wake up to bitter reality out of a dream of exactly this, to find herself, of course, alone, and weep painfully into her pillow. Now she would float slowly up out of sleep, feel him beside her, allow that simple fact to fill her with incredulous joy, and then drift off again. So, of course, at the moment between waking and sleeping, at the point where she was just going to drift back down into sleep again, Eight said, urgently, Vicky, wake up! No, she muttered. I told you, no messing with us unless the world is on fire. You can... But even with her eyes closed, she couldn't escape it when Eight lit up her HUD with a scene from Bella's office, from Bella's eye cam. And that was when her eyes flew open and she stifled a gasp, slipped gently out of Red's grasp and out of bed without waking him, tiptoeing to the far side of the opulent bedroom so her whispering wouldn't disturb him. Jesus, Clooney Frog 8? Is that J.M. and Sarah? Astonishment and elation filled her. They're alive! Yes, and yes, and the second young man is their son. I have no good explanation for this. But John Murdoch is back online, and you can ask him yourself. You should just listen to this for the moment, I think. Vicky grinned a little at the extremely mild and implied rebuke. Eight was asserting herself. This was good. But even better was the feed from Bella's office, which had her heart racing and her mind speeding. Got to talk to J.M. Pronto, and get to J.J. and overwatch him, and... A million ideas blossomed at once, 
and she listened and watched and sorted through them all at the same time. How do they look? She glanced up at Red, chagrined. Damn it, I was hoping not to wake you. Red smirked at her. Still getting used to how sensitive my hearing is. Well, I suppose that goes for all my senses. Learning how to dial them down when I don't need them. Vicky strolled back to the bed and sat down. They look amazing. And older. Red, they're alive. And they have a kid. He sat up, laid his hand on hers, and paused, lost in thought. From what I'm hearing through your earpiece, that kid sounds really... green. Having those two for parents can't say I'm too worried about him. But if he's got even a fraction of what they have, his trainers are going to have their hands full drilling into him how careful he's going to have to be. He's going to be very dangerous. She nodded. He's going to need a really good trainer. Hell, there's a building full of kids back in Atlanta that are going to need really good trainers. There's the ones the Murdochs rescued from the program, plus the ones that Bella and DG collected that Unter and Thea and I got out. And the gods only know how many kids triggered powers in response to the mothership fight. She bit her lip. Jesus. Echo is going to have to have a freaking school for these kids. And trainers that can handle kids who are stupidly overconfident and think they are immortal. She gave him the side eye. Red gave her a blank stare. She chuckled. Well, it is a thought, tall, dark, and waterproof. No one but me knows this is your real face. Let's slow down on all that, okay? Red muttered, shaking his head. I really don't know what I'm going to do now, Vix. I don't have a handle on any of this right now. I don't know how much I can do. Hell, I don't even know what I am anymore. I guess I'll have to figure it out soon. I'll tell you this, though. I am tired of hiding. I am tired of pretending. I might not know what I am, but I think I've finally figured out who I am. I'm someone who's always been afraid to do what's right. I'm not afraid anymore. He held her hand tightly and looked deep into her eyes. And you pretty much had everything to do with that. She felt her heart skip a half a dozen beats, and her eyes stung for a minute. Shoot, I just gave you a rope. You did all the climbing. Don't sell yourself short. It was always in there. She sniffed, rubbed her eyes quickly, and grinned. Besides, you still have plenty of asshole in you to leaven all that out. That's fair, he smirked. Very fair. And I absolutely have my due share of bitch. Also fair, he agreed. And I'm not afraid to use it. She thought she had probably never smiled this broadly in her life. We deserve each other. I certainly wouldn't wish you on anyone else, he said, and laughed as he slapped away the pillow she picked up to pummel him with. Pitiful. Afraid to fight with a girl? She slipped off the bed and started for the chair where she'd laid out clothing for today. Might as well get an early start. She yelped as she felt his elongated fingers wrap around her wrist, pulling her back. 
My best fights are with girls, as you well know, Red chuckled. Leave the clothes. Whatever you had planned for today, it'll keep. He drew her to him and held her close. Stay here, with me. Come back to bed. There's no way I can sleep now. Oh, yeah. Like we're going to sleep. You've been listening to The Secret World Chronicle, written by Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, Dennis Lee, and Veronica Jaguer. Narration and production by Veronica Jaguer at VoicesByVeronica.com. Quality review and production assistance by Laura Nicole at ResonantMoon.com. Music by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. The Secret World Chronicle podcast novel series is released under a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives 4.0 license. For previous episodes, check out secretworldchronicle.com. The Secret World Chronicle is published by the fantastic people at Bayon Books. Find fellow SWC fans on the Facebook group at www.facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Secret World Chronicle. And as always, thank you for listening. Wait a second. You didn't think this was it, did you? Stay for the Credits. Written by Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, Dennis K. Lee, and Veronica Jaguer. According to the sign on the door, normality would remain closed for the foreseeable future. Without a regular bartender and dedicated clientele, the establishment didn't have the means to survive. Most nights it stayed dark and silent, another casualty of the brutal war waged in and above Atlanta. But tonight, a bit of light winked from under the door. Someone had pushed aside the yellow tape and moved the padlock, and a young man with wireframe glasses and messy dark hair perched on a stool just past the door. He didn't have the bulk or the bluster that one might have expected from a bouncer, but the subtle twist of his fingers kept the metal lock in place against those not permitted inside. Mel smiled at Axel, who kept up a steady stream of conversation with one of the newcomers. She had never set foot in this space, although that beast wearing her face had held court with her friends on more than one occasion here. Mel kept her wrapped arm tucked in her sleeve and managed her duties one-handed. None of them really needed a bartender tonight, but standing behind the polished wooden counter felt right. Little steps. The bar had only half of the usual crowd tonight. Some remained at the Echo Medical Facilities in Recovery, like Corby and Mercury. Their CCCP comrades had yet to arrive, but Mel gave them a 50-50 chance of accepting the invitation. With the loss of their leader and others in critical condition, they might not be in the mood for sharing a drink outside of their compound. And some would never come home. Mel had dealt with her own grief and loss, but that didn't mean that she could say that she knew what each one of her compatriots felt now, or the next day, or in the weeks to come. At a table near the jukebox, Motu and Matai tried to outdo one another with their stories about leader of the pack. Each of them had a dog tucked under their chair, and a few others lurked nearby. At the far end of the bar, 
Spin Doctor sat with his laptop and a bottle of a peculiar Irish whiskey called Writer's Tears. He had been one of the first to arrive, claiming his corner and requesting a single glass. Obituaries and tributes had to be written, and what better place to begin surrounded by those with stories to share? Mel noticed him eavesdropping on the brothers, but didn't say anything. If he needed something, Spin would ask. A few chairs over, Yankee Pride sat with a beer and a pad of paper. He had neglected both for some time, staring off somewhere behind Mel. The condensation on the bottle had dried, but he declined a fresh drink. Like Spin Doctor, he shared the somber task of penning memorials for those fallen in service to Echo. Unlike the smooth public relations officer, Pride did not appear to have slept in the past few days. Mel reached over and patted his hand, offering him a soft smile. The gesture pulled him out of his daze, but he soon returned to staring at the paper instead of the bottles on the wall. The agreed-upon tap came at the door, and Spoonbender let the petitioner in. Petitioners, it turned out. A quartet from CCCP HQ. First, Gamma Yoon, free for the first time she had arrived in Atlanta to leave her comm officer's post. Mel only knew it was her because she was the only female in CCCP uniform still alive that Mel hadn't seen. She was tall and thin, with huge pale blue eyes, and incongruously, a long braid of white blonde hair curled into a sort of crown on the top of her head. With her was a nondescript man so average as to be utterly forgettable. Behind him was finally someone she knew. Untermensch, dour as ever. And behind him, Pelu Pier, a fionage, bearing an enormous cardboard box. The room was silent as the four Russians marched up to the bar. The last unceremoniously dropped the heavy box in the middle of the bar counter. Schwarma, enough for all, Thea said, opened the box and helped herself to a foil-wrapped roll. Vodka, please, she added, and glanced around the bar. In keeping expecting Pavel to pop up from behind Kotrek. Vodka, also, said Untermensch, adding. The peace and quiet is being unsettling without him here. Mel checked behind the bar. Sure enough, a case of something clear with a label in bold red Cyrillic letters stood out prominently. She started filling glasses, one after another, until loud music burst from the gaudy jukebox against the wall. Matai smiled sheepishly at her and raised his beer in salute, then returned to his storytelling. Well, there goes your peace and quiet, she drawled. I'm not sure if power of love would have been my first choice, but if the big guy there likes Huey Lewis, who am I to judge? Mel finished filling the glasses and nudged them toward the newcomers, keeping one for herself and leaving one on the bar. It's fine, replied Unter. He glanced over his shoulder briefly, then looked to Gamayun, nodding. To those who are with us, Gamayun said. And those who are not. The thin woman knocked back all of the shot in one go, and the other Russians responded in kind. In fact, everyone answered the toast, though everyone but the Russians confined themselves to sips rather than their entire drinks. Even delicate-looking Thea tossed back her drink like a Russian dock worker, although she followed hers with a bit of sandwich. Then Thea looked at the others. Shto? You think I cannot make shawarma? 
There was a hint of dark warning in her tone. If there's anything I can get for you all, just say so. Might take me a while to find it, but I'll do my best. Mel winked and inhaled deeply. The box smelled heavenly. Better get one of these myself, I think. That signaled a move on the box from Matai and his brother. She grabbed three, keeping one for herself and giving one each to the guys at the bar. Leah is excellent cook, said the nondescript man, and then smiled. Makes even cabbage soup taste like gift from non-existent gods. Thea preened a little, but replied only with a wink. Another tap on the door had Spoonbender's attention. This time, a lean woman with four arms sauntered in. She flashed a smile at Axel, who lit up like a Christmas tree. After a few words, she joined the group at the bar. Her nose twitched at the foil-wrapped packets, and she motioned to them with one hand. Mel nodded, and Shakti grabbed two. So, the word out there she began, pointing with a free hand to the door, is that people are going crazy over the idea of thousand-foot-tall deities in the middle of the ocean. It's all that anyone can talk about. The news trucks aren't anywhere near the Echo Campus tonight. Or the CCCP building, she added, nodding to Winter. It's like the rest of us here are just footnotes. Were they really a thousand feet tall? Mel had seen them up close, but the number still made her mind boggle. And people are obsessed with them, of all things? Please. Boobs the size of a McMansion, and a schlong the size of an airplane, though Atlas kept that under wraps. What do you expect people to talk about? She curled an arm casually around Spoonbender's shoulders. And now we know where tsunamis really come from. Good point. Given the choice between a mess of alien tech in the ocean and water goddess cleavage, the latter's more of a feel-good story. Mel grinned and slid over to Pride. She placed her foil-wrapped shawarma next to his arm. He didn't look up. Um, not very hungry, but thank you all the same. The page in front of him had a few paragraphs, with lines through many of the words. Mel considered moving the food, but decided against it. He'd eat at some point, out of either necessity or duty, and there was still plenty of Thea's food to go around. The speakers up on the wall, tied into an old and unused Muzak system, crackled two or three times. Hello, friends and comrades. May I, Tesla and Marconi, join you in spirit, if not in physical presence? For those who had heard the being, the voice was, despite the tinny speakers, unmistakable as belonging to Eight Ball. The room grew unnaturally silent. Even Motu and Matai had stopped mid-story, looking back in the direction of the bar and the assembled group. Mel glanced to the group of CCCP members, then to Shakti and Axel by the door. No one answered the little voice, but they all focused their attention on the corner of the bar where the two senior-most members of Echo sat. Go ahead. Pride didn't lift his head, but he scratched down a few more sentences. We'll have to see about getting some projectors installed in the space later on. Splendid, said a new voice with an Italian accent. My dear Mel, would you be so kind, signorina, to turn on those two television sets in the corners and put one on Old Channel 3 and the other on Old Channel 5? 
The sets predated the conversion to digital broadcasting, and as far as Mel had been able to tell, had not been used since. One of the televisions came on without any issue, and Channel 3 came into focus immediately. The second set required a good whack on the side before the fuzzy lines resolved into an image on Channel 5. Two impeccably dressed gentlemen appeared, their expressions showing every bit of wonder at being among others in the bar. First time I ever knew that the TV was going to watch me back, Mel said. Everything coming through loud and clear. Excellently, my dear lady, said the Channel 5 gentleman, cementing his idea as Tesla. Then he smiled a little. Of course, the concept of television working the other way is no stranger to our comrades now, is it? Untermensch barked a surprised laugh, and with one voice, every member of CCCP present chorused, In Soviet Russia, TV watches you. Pavel sends regards, Gamayun added, and complaints upgrades to body are letting him sleep. Tesla shuddered. It is a sheer miracle we were able to do anything. We were all afraid any inadvertent changes would shut that uh, bizarre system of his down completely. That's a fact, said a new voice from the door in the curiously flat intonation of someone who was deaf. Silent Knight, out of his armor for the first time anyone here could remember, but now able to converse with others thanks to his overwatch implants. He strolled to the bar looking in his T-shirt and jeans rather like a high school fullback rather than an Echo Meta, and pointed to the Jim Beam on the back bar. I don't know what wizard put him together, but I reckon he was nuts. Again, all the CCCP members chorused, this time with mock solemnity. Soviet technology. Touch nothing. You've been listening to the final episode of The Secret World Chronicle, a podcast novel series written by Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, Dennis K. Lee, and Veronica Jaguer. Narrated and produced by Veronica Jaguer at VoicesByVeronica.com. Quality review and production assistance conducted by Resonant Moon Audiobook Solutions at ResonantMoon.com. Music by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attributions No Derivative 4.0 license. For over 200 hours of this podcast series, go to secretworldchronicle.com. The Secret World Chronicle series, books one through five, are available from the fantastic people at Bayon Books. To keep up with news about sequels, anthologies, and other author projects, join our Facebook group at www.facebook.com forward slash groups, forward slash Secret World Chronicle. And finally, from me, your narrator. Since 2007, I've had the honor and pleasure of bringing these characters to life. This podcast may end, but the stories and characters will continue. We owe the success of the series to you, our listeners. From Mercedes, Cody, Dennis, and me, Veronica. Thank you ever so much for listening.